Hey, lovely Beaker Seekers, uh, Udbhav and Katraman here. Um, I hope you guys have been having a good week. Um, I had a pretty, I had a very nice week, but it was just very, very busy and exhausting and a lot happened and it was a lot of fun, but I just, uh, my social battery was definitely drained and it was just a lot of work and outside events. So I definitely took the time I needed this weekend to, you know, uh, recharge my social battery and take care of myself. Uh, just a small, rem gentle reminder to you that your health is really important, your physical health and your mental health and your emotional health. So make sure that uh, you're taking care of those because you won't be able to do all the things that you want to do if you yourself are not well. You can't take of other. You cannot take care of other people if you yourself are not well. So just keep that in mind. Now, I am really, really uh, happy and excited that I finally got to interview uh, and speak with today's guest in this platform because I've wanted to interview her for such a long time. She has been one of my, uh, one of my most inspirational and uh, kindest and impactful mentors and teachers um, in my educational and life journeys. Um, she's one of the most um, in addition to being like ridiculously smart, she's also one of the most open and uh, compassionate and empathetic people that I've met. And uh, the way she teaches is so, um, it's just so interesting. And I've learned so much just by observing her as a teacher, being a preceptor for her class. And you'll get to see some of the things that she intentionally does. And it's really, really amazing. Um, but I just wanted to tell a story that really shows what kind of a person she is. So last semester, um, I went through a really, really rough time and um, I needed to meet with this mentor uh, to talk about some future plans and to figure out what to do to move forward. And so we had that meeting and then uh, it's about the evening the same day. And I got this email from her and the email says, um, I, I did not intentionally mean to record the meeting. I actually did not want to record the meeting because I knew that it might be sensitive content. It might be sensitive uh, topics that might come up. So I just wanted to apologize in case that recording um, unintentionally caused you any distress. And that really shows what kind of a person she is. Now, I didn't even notice that she, the meeting was being recorded, but the fact that she had the self-awareness and the integrity to say that, and also the fact that, that she had the empathy to know that small, small things can sometimes take a huge toll on a person's mental health. The fact that she practiced that empathy and then made it clear to me that it was not intentional, that integrity is something that um, I am inspired by and really sticks with me. And um, you can see how much how empathetic she is and how she uses that empathy to guide her teaching and learning style. So I, I am just so honored and thrilled and happy that I was able to talk to her um, for the podcast. So let's get into the interview. I got to speak with uh, Dr. Amy Graham, who is a chem professor um, teaching Chem 151 in the chemistry department this semester as well as a course on how to become a better learning assistant. All right, let's get to the interview. Take care, hope you enjoy it. Would you be willing to talk about what your teaching philosophy is and like, just like give like the whole like surface spiel? Well, yeah. so I think that for me, most of my methods and my philosophy around teaching, they center around student success. I think that my goal, and as I feel like most goals of instructors um, should be, to, to create opportunities for your students to be successful in your course. 
And so that's really one of my central themes. And I have a lot of different ways that I try to accomplish that. Um, but that's kind of my bigger goal. Do you want me to talk more specifically about some of those methods? Sure, please do. Yes. Um, so one of the things that I do that's kind of unique to me in terms of my class um, is that uh, I teach in a collaborative learning space, which that isn't particularly unique, but um, that I assign groups and I change groups. And so I do three group assignments in each semester, so every five weeks. And I do this for a variety of reasons. One is that I want students to actually collaborate with one another. I want them to talk to one another because that is a part of processing information. And I teach chemistry and I teach chemistry early in the morning. And I will tell you that if you wanna keep students conscious and engaged, so conscious and engaged, both important things, um, that, that to give them opportunities and plenty of opportunities to actually um, process the information by verbalizing it, vocalizing it. Um, but I also assign groups to minimize some of the negative behaviors that come with um, group work and students that self-select into groups. You know, a lot of students, when they have the opportunity to choose um, who they want to work with, they don't always make great decisions about doing that. Um, many of them, particularly my students, because they are first year students um, taking general chemistry, um, they'll choose friends or acquaintances from high school, maybe people that they knew growing, 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 growing up, it's, just got done teaching for two hours. Um, but uh, people that they knew growing up, you know, a lot of times then they'll choose to talk about other things besides chemistry, um, or they might engage in other behaviors um, that tend to happen when they are in their in-group. And sometimes that occurs, whether that's within their in-group here at the university, um, the in-group could be, you know, somebody that's on their sports team, somebody that's um, in their fraternity or their sorority, um, friends, you know, they tend to behave in, in more exclusive behaviors instead of inclusive behaviors. And so I really want to create those opportunities to um, engage with others and learn soft skills. I mean, and build networking, uh, like build their academic network, because, you know, studies have shown that the more um, the larger the academic network that the student can build, um, the more likely they are to succeed. And so building that is a really important thing. Um, so that's one of the unique things that I do is, is really assigning the groups and, and um, you know, holding students accountable to sitting in those groups, but then also changing them. Hmm. Gotcha. And so like, how do you, does it also help just because it's such a big class like if you're lecturing to like 500 students like the whole time like i bet that's really really exhausting so like having yeah so like how do you i mean like what unique challenges come with teaching such a big class and like what strategies do you use to try to um you know <laughs> like to, to try to like lessen the burden on yourself because that's like having 500 eyes on you for like even like 20 minutes is a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so it's really, it's not all about me. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, it's not. Um, I'm there more as a coach um, mm -hmm. than I am as uh, like a central focus. And so I think that, that having that mentality that it's not just about me, it's about the students um, and that they are actually doing the heavy lifting. They're do, they are doing the work, um, you know, just like a coach, you know, I can bark orders and tell you what to do and tell you to run these drills or whatever. But at the end of the day, if you don't do the work, it's not gonna, it's not gonna play out so well in the long run. Um, and so for me, one of the big things that helps me in that, in that goal of, of making about the students is that I talk less. I just do. Um, and that I have a big team. 
you know, having a large teaching team, which you're a part of, you know, that's super important because if students are doing the heavy lifting and they're doing the work, they need people that, that are around to help guide them and, you know, nudge them along. And so, so the teaching team is super important, but you know, the structure is important. The, like I, I, the way I structure activities, the way I think about what activities will be productive, the way that um, I interrupt activities. Sorry to turn my email off because I'm getting bing, bing, bing. <laughs> I'm just getting all these emails. Um, but yeah, how I structure the activities and how I present them and how as I'm walking around the classroom, particularly if students are using whiteboards, that I can get a sense of where we are, you know, as a collective. Um, are we understanding things? Um, just doing simple things like raise your hand if you feel like you understand the question or that you have a, have an, a response. Um, those are all things to gauge. The volume of the room, I don't know if you've heard the volume of the room and how it might change or shift um, throughout an activity. Those things are things that I pay attention to. But I mean, it's important to consider all of those different portions of the of the realm of, of teaching that large number of students to kind of keep that inertia moving forward. Mm. Yeah. And so, so you mentioned like gauging the volume of the room and like walking around, are there any other ways or like, like indicators that you use to like notice the general like understanding of the room about certain topics? You know, I, like yeah. a lot of times I'll ask students to like vote on a whiteboard or I'll ask them, okay, on the count of three, say A, B, C, or D. Um, at the beginning of the class, I tend to do Socrative activities. And so within the Socrative activities, I can real time see how many students have answered a question. Um, I can see if it's a multiple choice question, I can see the stats on the question, like what percentage of the students got it correct or incorrect. Um, and so Socrative is a tool that I use typically at the start of class, um, but it is a tool that I can use to real time see where, where students are in terms of their progress through the activity as well as their understanding. And then I also ask questions like, what do you still have questions about? Or what have you learned from this activity? Or um, what what do you recall? And so I can look at those questions and that gives me an indication um, of, of where we're at, just like walking into the day. You know, where, where are the confusions from the previous class periods? And where are the, the challenges? That actually, um, I think that kind of segues into another uh, really, another question I've been, I, I'm curious about and something that I've noticed that I particularly feel that you do really well, um, but just facilitating like uh, a space where you can make mistakes. Um, because I think a lot of students, especially uh, students who like, or especially first year students, like think that they really either they think that they can screw around all they want and then like catch up later um and or they think that they can't make any mistakes or if they don't understand something or if they don't know something that's a reflection on their intelligence level or they think that they're just like fixed at being like not understanding and so they stay in that confused state and when you it's like it, it it takes effort to decide to reach out and ask for help that's a, that's a hard thing to do especially when you're this like tiny little freshman in this completely unknown place so what are some things that you try to do in order to facilitate a non-judgmental learning environment where you can make mistakes because we learn a lot from just making mistakes i mean there's there's a lot of things um i don't know uh there's research out there on this idea of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And so I try to use um, growth mindset language. And so a growth mindset is when you feel like, like your um, outcomes are based more upon effort than your innate ability. 
um, fixed mindset is where you think it's all about your innate ability. So like either you're smart or you're stupid. Um, that's a fixed mindset. And so a lot of students come out of high school with that attitude, like I'm smart or I'm good at chemistry or I'm good at math. Um, or some many students uh, sadly come out of high school thinking that they're stupid or they're not good at chemistry or they're not good at math or whatever. And so what the important thing to embrace is to, to use language that supports effort over smarts. Um, and so, you know, when students say to me, like, I'm not good at chemistry, I'll say, you're not good at chemistry yet. You know, like anything, like riding a bike, like driving a car, like playing an instrument, playing a sport. All of these things take conscientious time and effort to build the skills. And so I focus on that. I try to um, impress upon students, particularly when we change groups, because that's a more sensitive time that um, nobody's better than anybody else. And we might be better at some things, but that doesn't you know, change our value or our worth. Um, but that really the, the goal isn't to know everything. The goal is to learn. And so you know, thinking about the processing that's required for learning and talking through things, um, that's important. But I also try to normalize questions a lot of people and a lot of professors have this narrative that um, if you're asking a question, it means you're stupid or that the question is stupid or there's just a lot of weird stigmas around asking questions. But the reality is, is that nobody's going to learn everything, you know, just because you said it or just because I said it. And so, you know, I'm constantly like, okay, talk to your neighbors. What do you have questions about? Talk to your neighbors. What do you have questions about? Um, I don't ask uh, if there are questions. I just say, what questions are there? I'm so sorry. Should I have? I'll take that later. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably one of those, like, uh, I was like, I was getting all this phone calls. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I spend time to say, what questions do we have? And that language is very important. What questions, not if they have questions, do you have questions? Yes or no. Um, versus what questions, it implies that there are going to be questions. Mm -hmm. And so really being intentional about the language that you use and the space, like I provide space and time for students to process, digest, ask questions, um, committing that energy and the time and the space to questions um, helps students recognize that it is a safe and comfortable space to ask. Mm. That actually, that leads me, that leads me to when you talk about like space and time to process, that reminds me of, I, we've talked about this before, but uh, your use of silence in class. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about how you intentionally choose to uh, be silent or pause or like uh, talk slowly and like with a lot of spaces in between? Like how do you use silence to help increase processing and understanding? Yeah, I mean, it, it's super important to, as particularly when you're like lecturing, and I'm putting lecturing in quotes, you know, when I want to impress on my students that something is important or relevant or a key point, I will say something. So for example, I'll say temperature is a measure of the average kinetic energy. And if I just said it like that and moved on with my life, it would appear to be like any other random thing that came out of my mouth. But I'll say temperature is a measure of the average kinetic energy. And I'll pause. And then I'll say with intention, let me say that again. <laughs> and that to me is to my students, once they are trained to, to appreciate that, they're like, you know, throwing their like, oh my God, she's going to say that again. So it must be important. They're just like, yeah. And you'll see it, it's kind of cute and funny. Um, but I'll pause and I'll say, let me say that again. 
the pause is there for a couple of reasons. One, it takes time for stuff to leave my mouth, go into somebody's ears, go into their brain, and then come out onto a piece of paper. That takes time. It also is just because I said it once doesn't mean they heard it properly. It's so easy to mishear something and to get something flipped um, or get a word wrong. And so if I say temperature is a measure of the average kinetic energy, I pause, let me say that again, temperature is a measure of the average kinetic energy. And I'll say it multiple times because each time I say it, it washes over you in a different way. And so whether it's a matter of their ability to hear it and write it down, whether the student speaks English as their primary language or not, whether the student is hearing the words I'm saying and not like the words that we use in chemistry are often foreign to the average listener. They're not maybe, you know, kinetic energy might not be a principle that they're used to talking about. And so building those connections um, as they hear it more and more times, it changes their familiarity with it. And so, yeah, I think it's super important to leave those pauses for processing, for writing, um, just and and then repeating myself because though like it's important and actually i had some people that were during that uh acs meeting a couple of weeks ago that came and observed my classes and both of them said to me it's astonishing how attentive how attentive the students are when i'm speaking which i think is funny because i'm like it's 8 a.m 9 a.m monday wednesday friday and we're like barely hanging on <laughs> Um, but he said that and I said, well, because part of it is, is I don't talk a lot. If I do talk, it's relevant and it's important. And so it helps to build those skills in that, like, okay, if she's saying, if she's taking the time to lecture, like I should probably listen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that the silence for processing is super important. And I think that, you know, repeating myself. It just builds those things in and then it builds trust. Honestly, if students trust that if, if something is really important, I'll say it multiple times, then they trust that that will happen. And okay, another thing that I've noticed you do, which sometimes it just makes me laugh half the time, but it's it's so it makes the class so engaging is just your use of of like humor and analogies. Uh, that are like very like life pertinent like when you talk about um what is it like you talk about electronegativity between two atoms and you talk about like a, a, like a sibling pair how good of sharers they are and then throw a little shade <laughs> you know shade, yeah. yeah it's like it, it just like when i like wonder um is there any I, I'm sure there's a reason, but like, is there any reason why, why like throwing in analogies like that, that are like very like life related sometimes or like, you know, humorful or things, does it, that makes like certain information stick better? Because I find that in my preceptor office hours, when I do that, it also makes the information stick a lot better. And also just like one other thing I noticed you did today morning, which just like, it made me laugh a lot was like, you were like, the answer everybody knew was C and you're like, oh, the answer is A. And then like, no, it's C. And it's like, <laughs> oh yeah. do you like do stuff, stuff like that? How does like stuff like that help make the class like more engaging or like make information stick better? Well, well, first of all, one of my personal philosophies is just because we're doing chemistry doesn't mean we can't be having fun. And a little rib in there, like, uh, you know, and I did that in 8 a.m. I didn't do it in the 9 a.m. The 9 a.m. was we were at a different we were on a different struggle bus in the 9 a.m. Um, but in the 8 a.m., I don't know. I was just in there and everybody was quiet. And I was like, so obviously the answer is A. And then you hear like everybody get frustrated. I'm like, no, no, no. it's C. And then, <laughs> I just, like there's no reason why we can't just have a little fun. 
Like, you know, it, there's no reason why we can't. And honestly, there's so much stress and anxiety present around learning chemistry. There's a huge stigma about chemistry. There's a huge stigma around the material and how hard it is. And, you know, there's no reason to not lighten the mood, like a little, just even a little, if it's with music, if it's with humor. I mean, humor is a part of like, it is a love language for me. It is a part of who I am. Um, sarcasm is a part of who I am. Um, and so it's hard to like check those bags at the door, if you will. Now, in terms of uh, what was the other question that you asked? Oh, analogies. Um, these that is like a demonstrated evidence based practice that if you can take something in your discipline and relate it to something they already know, 100% it makes it stick much more. And so uh, definitely that is a known, well known, well observed practice. And it's a matter of finding things that are relatable to students. And chemistry is super abstract. You know, if you think about it, all the different stuff, like from water, like I can't see a water molecule. So I can't watch it engage uh, with intermolecular forces with other water molecules. Um, you know, I can't see oxygen and its electronegativity. Like I could try to put a color on it, but like, at the end of the day, we can't see that. So trying to relate those ideas to something that we do understand, like the unequal sharing, you know, and I use my brother as an example. I've used the dogs as an example of that, because if you've ever had two animals or two more than two animals, you know that one of them is the hoarder. Like in our dog family, we have Peggy and we have Louise and Louise is the toy hoarder. Um, Peggy, like there will be 15 toys in the room. Peggy picks up one and Louise is like obsessed about that one toy until Peggy finally puts it down. And then she picks up the toy and she's like, oh my God, she was touching my toy. Um, <laughs> seriously. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, these are real dynamics in everyday life. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that relating the chemistry, the, the things that we can't see to things that we do understand 100%, that's super important um, to be able to do that. Got it. Um, I was curious, I, re I really wanted to ask you, um, have you had any, uh, or maybe this is not the right, how, Okay, how do I phrase this? Um, have you had any mentors or teachers that you feel you like, like took certain elements of their teaching style and implemented into yourself? Or like had any like teachers or mentors you're like, I'm definitely not doing that in my classroom. <laughs> um, how have like your mentors or teachers influenced the way that you are a mentor? or a teacher to your students? Um, yeah, I've had all the things. I mean, I think that in, with respect to teaching, I mean, there's a lot of people that have Im impacted my teaching and informed the decisions that I make around teaching. Um, and there's a lot of them, you know, and, and, and so much of it is, is, is finding what is both authentic to you as a person, like in terms of your mentoring style, in terms of your teaching style, um, like what's authentic to you? Because if you try to show up, like if I tried to show up, um, like for example, um, Dr. Pollard is, is a, a fantastic chemistry teacher within our department. Um, and I watched him teach quite a bit. He's very enthusiastic, he's very energetic, and he hates on ASU a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because I tried to do that for a little while, like, oh yeah, ASU, whatever. And it's just not a part of me to do that, to like throw shade. Because to me, it's like you go to school wherever you go to school. Mostly, most, many people don't have like a plethora of choices in terms of where they can go to school. So like, you know, I, so it, it's just not a part of me and my 
my character. So I tried to do that for a while and it just didn't, it wasn't a part of me. Um, what is a part of me apparently is telling students what the wrong answer is. And then uh, <laughs> like, I'm oh, just kidding. <laughs> um, but I, you pull like teachers. One of the things I learned early on is teachers are the biggest thieves. We actually, we take things from other instructors and we use those things. And I learned that the university of Arizona has these things called faculty learning communities where faculty from across campus can get together and chit chat about teaching methods. And I was both a participant as well as a facilitator in those faculty learning communities where we just talk about like things that we do and why we do them and what works, or I tried this and it really didn't work or, you know, thinking about what is your persona when it comes to teaching? Like, to me, um, I feel like I'm much more of like a warm, nurturing, kind of mother-like, but it depends on the mother, I suppose, because everybody's got different moms. My mom was not particularly nurturing, I would say. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, my persona, I feel like is much more like warm or nurturing kind of person. Uh, but, uh, you know, finding out what's like authentic or unique or um, characteristic of you and yourself so that it doesn't come off as being um, odd or off-putting. Like I can get away with a lot of things that my colleagues couldn't. Um, for example, if students disagree on something like this happened in office hours last week um, and somebody said one thing and another person said another and I'm like, fight, 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 fight. <laughs> Right. And I said that just to one of to somebody, um, a male professor who's in a different department. And he said, if I said that to my students, I might get fired. Like, <laughs> you know, like it would be off putting because if it's a man um, of tall stature that's telling people to mm. fight, you know, it might come off differently than me, who's very silly, you know, clapping, fight, fight, fight. You know, there are things that I can get away with because I'm doing it in a playful fashion. I don't know if I'm, I just, I feel like I'm just chatting. At some that point. That's honestly better. That's great. I love it. <laughs> this is like oh. very, very casual. It, it, this, this is, I just, I, oh, this is so great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I was going to ask you, um, so, okay, wait, hold on. Give me a second. I like have 20,000 questions that are always like swirling in my head and I have to like make it sound, make sense. Um, I get it. Yeah. Um, I actually, another thing, I remember you had mentioned, I don't remember where I heard this. Maybe it was in like an office hour or something, but that in your, I don't know if it was undergraduate like career, like as a graduate, you did a lot of like tutoring of like other students and like that helped, that helped, like that like helped foster like sort of an interest in wanting to mentor or like teach students how is how is that like could you just talk about those experiences and how you feel like um like maybe like how you developed your teaching style or teaching persona through like those kinds of experiences i mean i think when i first came to grad school so any tutoring that i did was grad school or beyond mm -hmm. um when i first started graduate school um you know, really my focus was try to, to do whatever I could to not have to teach, <laughs> you know, you know, cause when you come into graduate school, so much of your focus is on doing research and, and, uh, you know, and so I, I, uh, that was a lot of what I wanted to do. And so my first year I taught, and then my second year of graduate school, I had a fellowship. And so I, I did a lot of instrumentation work. Um, but then later on in my graduate career, um, I was tutoring to make money, you know, essentially because, um, you know, I don't know if you know this, but as a graduate student, you really make money below like the poverty line. It's, you don't make a lot of money. Um, and so I tutored to make money, but one of the things that I learned in doing that was that I, you know, how do you, how do you confer your knowledge to somebody else when it doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever? Like, how do you connect 
because some things that I know, like, I just feel like I almost just know them, you know, it just makes sense to me. So it's hard to find ways to put that information out there so that it's absorbable by somebody else. And so in my process of tutoring, I really, that was something that was really difficult for me was to how to translate between my knowing um, and their understanding. And it's, it's been a battle. I mean, it's not, it like, you know, we just have difference and I can't forget the stuff that I already know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just can't take like that memory stick out and set it down and go back to where I was when I was learning it. Sometimes I, I can talk, talk or speak to the challenges that I personally had, but sometimes I, I can't. And so most of what I learn in terms of how to relate things functionally, like how to really and truly relate things to students who are learning it, I learn in office hours. Like so many things, I, like, I'm like, that's where the problem was? Okay. <laughs> and it's not, you know, and it's not in any way belittling like them for, for that like specific confusion, but then that has translated to me saying, I need to use different language. Like the language that we use it as chemists isn't always relatable to the outside world. And so how can we work that in such a way to make it understandable? How can we draw things? How can we draw pictures to make things more relatable? Um, a lot of that has come to me in office hours and not really in class because I have so many more one-on-one -on -one moments in office hours um, than I do in class or, um, you know, even so, yeah, yeah, I've been saying or, but uh, really in class when <laughs> there's a couple hundred students and, and me. But, um, but yeah, I think those moments, I, I learn a lot. And, and honestly, it's just, as humans, we can all learn a lot more if we listened more and talked less. Hence the not Life lecturing lesson. a lot in class. Yeah. yeah. Just little things in life. Yeah. Um, so. All right. So another, uh, also, I just wanted to do a time check. I know you have office hours at 11, and I know you probably want to break. So. Yeah, I'm yes. okay. I yeah. still probably have about 10 minutes. 10 minutes? Okay, cool. So one uh, big thing I really wanted to ask you about, and this is something that I struggle with a lot, to be honest, um, is putting balancing empathy with not getting overly attached <laughs> like um, <laughs> um i don't know i think it depends on the person yeah. some people are overly empathetic and they yeah. cannot not get attached right um i am an i am sad I don't know if it's sadly, um, I, I take, so when students tell me about stuff, when, yeah. um, things happen, when I learn about things from students or about students or whatever, um, uh, particularly the very, you know, harsh and dire circumstances that many human beings will find themselves in. Okay. Um, and some of those human beings happen to be my students. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I take that home with me and it's, it's hard. Um, and that's part of why I, I probably grow more and more empathetic every year is because I learn more and more possible things that people could be going through in life. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that when it comes to, um, like reality of situations, um, in, in particular students that are, are struggling with the content, you know, I can only do so much and I will check that bag at the door. Like I can, I cannot do it for you. Mm -hmm. I can't like, so however it is, if you need to come to my office hours or whatever, I, but I also cannot sit with students, um, day after day and spend an hour with one person three days a week. I can't do that. It's just not like, it's not logistically possible. And so um, there are plenty of other resources out there that are available, but 
those those things i'm like i i can help you i can do my best to try to help with office hours or making videos or whatever but i honestly and sincerely cannot do it for you and so i do check that bag i just say you know i feel for you i'm sorry that that sucks um so I can draw that line, but when it comes to students that are going through hard times, it's a matter of extending a homework or, you know, talking about, um, you know, options for exams or whatever, those conversations I'm willing to have, but um, learning, I, I just can't do it for them. And... Mm. Yeah, like setting set, it's like, I, I think that's one thing, like, empathetic people sometimes struggle with is that like you know like I really want to be like I feel your pain I really like I I want you to know how much like I care for you and especially like like you said you have that like warm motherly kind of teacher persona and so like naturally you know you really want to just like care for everybody and like make everybody's problems go away and you know like have everybody like you know know how much you love and care for them but at the same time, you know, like many times you can't do things about it. So I, I was just curious, like you don't have to say any specific examples of, of, of or like of students or anything. But how mm. have you, um, you know, like modified your like, like you said, how, like you get more empathetic every year, or like start watching out for more things every year as you hear more stories. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like some of the ways that you've like uh, like modified the way you like teach or the way you interact in class based on hearing stories from students. Like I, I notice like sometimes you'll send emails just being like, hey, just know that you matter or like you have value, stuff like that. Are there any like other things that you've, you've, you do that you feel like in response to hearing those kinds of stories? I mean, I think that um, I do think that uh, I try to generally share with students that I, I do struggle and and I try to share with students, you know, that um, that even like today, the microphone wasn't working. And I don't know, I think it was in the 9 a.m., the beginning of the 9 a.m., my microphone stopped working and uh the, that one of the IT people was in the room and and he was like, oh, it looked like this button was depressed and so it just wasn't functioning. And I laughed and of course I'm mic'd up on a different mic now. And I'm like, he just said that the microphone was depressed and so it stopped functioning. And I don't, I didn't know that a microphone could be my spirit animal, but now I know. <laughs> um, but I think that just making those like relationships and being like, you know, and just letting students know, I mean, I, I'm not perfect, certainly. And um, I struggle, certainly. And I think that, you know, being real about that is important. I think that I try to better inform myself. So I do a lot of reading outside of school. Um, and a lot of what I read are, are nonfiction historical memoirs, perspectives, um, those types of things to better understand the human experience, the diversity of the human experience and the complexity of that experience. Um, and so I, I pay very close attention to, you know, students and their, you know, even their, um, I think about what their background could be when I look at a student and that helps me to sympathize with them more. I think about, um, you know, possibly what oppressions they could have faced um, when I look at a student or when I listen to a student and, um, and I really, I try to do my best to listen. So I think what it's taught me more than anything is that I should ask, you know, so when I notice that somebody's not around, instead of saying like, you're going to get a zero on your attendance, um, I say, is there something I should know? It's a different approach. Um, when asking people, you know, kind of where they're from, um, and I put that in quotes, because, you know, I, I think that that this idea of like where you're from, what your background is, is, ver is varied for a lot of people. Um, 
it's a question that we very commonly ask students that are in a university setting, like, and, and for the most part, we're like, oh, are you from Tucson? Do you live in Scottsdale? Do you, are you from Florida? Like, that's kind of what we're thinking about. Um, but I think that that can be a, a difficult question for a lot of people because maybe they don't have those um, experiences of having one place that they're from. Military families don't. Mm. Um, many families have had to move around for a variety of, of issues. Some of them are, you know, some of them are refugees, you know, that come from different places because they were uh, no longer welcome where they, where they were from. And so that's a tough, that's a tough conversation. And so thinking about how you can ask those questions of where somebody's coming from physically, but also, you know, emotionally and, you know, their backgrounds. I think I, I try to use language in different ways instead of just saying, oh, where are you from? Mm. <laughs> Even though it's really common. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, so many things change over the years, but I would hope that students would see that I care, that I care about their success and um, I care about their success regardless of whatever, um, whatever their background is. Got it. Um, I just wanted to ask, I, that's pretty much all the questions I had. I just wanted to ask you if there was anything else you wanted to share, or talk about, or you wanted me to mention uh, in the letter or any like final words or thoughts or anything. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, I think we've kind of summarized a lot of the things that, you know, really are my, you know, go go to methods and, and my kind of ideas behind what I do. Um, you know, I think that it's important that that students know that we're we're humans, you know, as as professors, we're humans, just like y'all we're just at a different stage in our lives. Um, and that I think that uh, most most students find uh, us to be intimidating. I find it actually bizarre when students find me intimidating. I'm like, me? Because <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of a goofball, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm goofy and silly. And, um, but, I, you know, but I, that's part, partially because that's kind of who I am. But part of that is my teaching persona. Like if you see me um, outside of teaching, um, I actually had a student ask me if I was okay. And he sent me an email because he saw me and he said it seemed like something was really off because I wasn't this like bubbly engaging person when he saw me on the street. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, that's actually just my introvert self. Like mm -hmm. I am genuinely an introvert. And, um, and so I'm not like this like openly gregarious, outgoing person um, in my everyday life. I can be that and if I'm out and about running around, but um, it's really not who I am in a lot of ways. But I think that students should understand that, that so much of what we do, uh, you know, we are in some ways putting on a show when we're teaching because we do have to have like that persona to engage our students. but but sometimes we have to fake it till we make it too. And we have to develop coping mechanisms to operate under the conditions of teaching in a large class. Um, and that, that aren't, you know, particularly part of ourselves. And so it's not that I'm just like some fake wannabe person that's sitting in front of the classroom. That's not really what it is, but it is a, it is a coping mechanism. I'm not gonna lie like so i love the i just i i just love the idea of like just be like oh like there there there's me and then there's like the lady gaga who's like teaching instead of <laughs> in front of the classroom it's pop, like pop, pop, poker face yeah. pop, pop, poker face na 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 yeah exactly. no. it's like it's your superhero persona there's clark kent and then there's superman you know there, there, there's me, and then there's the preceptor. You know, it's like, it's, 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 it's a very, very like, 
honestly, it's kind of a heartwarming idea to think about. Like you're putting on a show, you're like conducting a symphony of instruments, preceptors, students, TAs, yourself. You know, like it's 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 a it's it's like it's a it's a it's a orchestral piece. That's ex- that's a yeah. great you know analogy. You know that. It is, and there's preparation that goes into that, you know, in terms of the content and, you know, building in ideas around teaching that many of my teaching team members go through. But then there's also this, like, in the moment, you know, how do you react and respond when things get off tempo, when things, you know, because if you ever played an instrument and things got a little hairy in the middle of a piece, you know, how do you recover from that? And but yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot that goes into it. And for me, I just like when I walk into a classroom, I step into that. Like, I, it's not a conscious decision that I make like, oh, I need to shift into teaching mode. It happens very organically and naturally. But when I step out of teaching, I, it, I, I slump kind of back into my more internal in my head mode which Mm. people aren't used to seeing students aren't used to seeing that version of me and they can find it alarming like this student was worried that i was depressed or that something was wrong with me and i'm not going to say that they were wrong (laughs) per se but that you know but i'm in my head a lot and i Mm. and and i think that a lot of people would probably relate to that, that, you know, I'm just walking down the street. I don't need to be like all charms and smiles and rainbows and unicorns. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a constant thing that, cause I'm con- like, if I'm out in public anywhere, people know who I am. Mm-hmm. Go to university and try to grab lunch with me. Celebrity among the students. Another way you're Lady Gaga. <laughs> Uh, I know. I'm yeah. all I'm picturing are like you know the the costumes from like Bad Romance. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it's like picturing myself in that realm. But yeah, I mean, it is. It it really is. Um, in a lot of ways, it's a it, it is a performance of sorts. And um, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't mean that it's not a part of me. It's just that there are different versions of me that show up and you get like, and you'll get different, like on Monday, you know, it was a different version of me. I was a little bit more subdued. I think it's a, it's a hard day for me. I talked about the suicide stuff and, you know, I think that, that those are some, those are harder, more serious conversations to have. Um, And some students don't like that I take student or that I take class time to talk about that, but actually I don't care because the students that need to hear it uh, need to hear it more than somebody else is annoyed that they had to hear it. Right. Uh, yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really enjoyed uh, getting to learn everything I got to learn. Um, yeah. Uh, if you made it all the way to the end of the episode, thank you so much for sticking with me and uh, Dr. Graham. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, talking with me and sharing all of your wisdom. I'd also like to thank uh, Jillian Barch, my co-host, uh, Pascal Albright, the multimedia editor, the Science Desk, and Arizona Student Media. Uh, Behind the Beaker is a daily Wildcat podcast created by Alexandra Perry. Um, and it is by the Daily Wildcat, Daily Wildcat, online all the time at dailywildcat.com. Uh, be sure to check out our socials, our Facebook, uh, Instagram, or Twitter for the Daily Wildcat is at Daily Wildcat. And be sure to also follow us, Behind the Beaker, on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Beaker Behind. Uh, if you have any questions or ideas for guests or just want to talk to us, anything, feel free to contact us at beakerpodcast at dailywildcat.com. That's beakerpodcast at dailywildcat.com. All right. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time. Bye.